All right. Well, appreciate everybody being back. Glad you weren't terrified out of last week from talking about the Trinity. And uh, do want to encourage you. I've, I've, I've had several ask some really good questions, and I certainly want to encourage you. Questions are good. And so if you've got questions, as stuff comes up, if you've got things you think of, please don't hesitate to uh, flag me down. And if it's something I can help answer or shed light on right then, I will, or send me an email uh, or a text message, though uh, text may take a little longer because if you ask me something really deep theological, it's hard to move, my, even for me, my thumbs that much. Uh, or a phone call or come in and meet. would love to answer, continue to answer questions. Uh, even in the last week, I've, I've had... Uh, several several questions about the Trinity from variety of places. Some that are that are right online, some that aren't. And so it's just it's a real reality uh, of trying to understand and comprehend God as He reveals Himself in His Word. And I remind you, uh, that's what we're after. Uh, last week, on the top of your your cheat sheet from last week, was the quote from Tozer: "What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us." The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And essentially, what, what, what ultimately he's coming after is you and I's understanding and view of who is God and what is God like dictates every way we respond to him. And the way in which we respond to him every way in which we live and move and breathe in life. And when it comes to worldview, just remind you, the question with worldview is not what we say we believe, but it's what our actions actually reveal we believe. So there's many of us that can spout the right answers about God, but do our, does, does the action of our life show that we view Him correctly? And so, as we walk through tonight and next week, we're going to attempt to in two weeks, and if we got to space it out, we will, but think we can do it in two weeks pretty safely. We're going to walk through what we would call the attributes of God. Now, when I say the attributes of God, simply what I mean is this is us attempting to answer what is God like? How does he act? Why does he act that way? Uh, why is he that way? This is what we are looking at, and our understanding of who God is will be the framework, not just for our worldview, but for the rest of our theology, and you see this in classic poor examples of God. Someone who views God as the cosmic judge exclusively has a very fearful or negative relationship with God. Vice versa, on the other polar end of the spectrum, is that person who views God as uh, the cosmic, but in human terms, grandfather. Just that, do I mean, what's the, the joke about being the grandparent is you get to come and play with your grandkid and have a blast and dote and spoil them, and when they get angry, you hand them back to mom and dad because you just get to be the doting grandparent, right? Both of those miss e either distort aspects of God and take those aspects to extremes. So what we want to do with the attributes of God is, is we want to let Scripture speak for itself. I have given you kind of a Scripture or two on your cheat sheet. I have a whole lot more. I spent a lot of time today, though, actually writing, typing all of them into my notes so we, uh, we can get to as many of them as possible. Uh, I can't flip through my Bible that fast, unfortunately. But here's the danger when we come to the attributes of God. We typically, in trying to understand the attributes of God, either try to, to perform a scientific dissection 
Or if you've ever remember back in biology class when you ever had to dissect the pig or whatever animal it was you had to dissect, you're trying to go through and name off every little thing and, and, and splice it all apart and separate it out. And all of a sudden, we can get distorted because we're, we're trying to break it up in a way that not even Scripture does. Vice versa, we can leave it so broad and general that we miss out on the fact that God is not just a generically hazy, ambiguous being named God. He is a specific being, and and he has things that delight him, things that don't delight him. He has actual attributes. So by attributes of God, what we mean are those qualities of God that make up what he is, the very characteristics of his nature. So this differs than his actions. His actions would be creating, guiding, preserving, saving, redeeming things he does, but his attributes drive why he does what he does and how he does what he does. Now understand, we looked at the Trinity last week. You'll hear me use the term Trinity, triune God, or Godhead all interchangeably. And I just tell you that right now to say, if I use any one of those terms, I'm referring to the same thing, the triune God, the Godhead, God. God is Trinity. The Godhead, when it comes to the attributes, possesses all attributes in full. So the father doesn't somehow have more of one attribute than the son. All right? So because, the, because Jesus took on humanity and he emptied himself, he didn't give up his deity, but he chose not to use his deity as a thing to be lorded over him and empowered over us. He chose in his humanity to depend upon the power of the spirit at the direction of the father. Because he chose to submit in that way, one might go, well, Jesus must not be as powerful as the father. Or there's some charismatic groups that would say, well, Jesus and the Father are not as powerful as the Spirit, which is why you have to have so much baptism of the Spirit and this and that and the other. No, look, Father, Son, and Spirit, they all have the same power. They're all equally powerful. Remember last week, each person is co-equal. So every attribute, which means this. Though in the Old Testament, we tend to see the Father acting and someone goes, look how wrathful and judgmental he is, but look at Jesus, he's so loving. Guess what? The Father's just as loving and Jesus is just as wrathful and judging. And so is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. So all the persons of the Trinity, to be precise in our language, possess all the attributes in full. Not only that, but God's attributes are permanent and intrinsic. Here's what we mean by that. God cannot lose any of his attributes. As we'll see tonight, one of his attributes is unchangeableness. So he cannot change in any of his attributes as well as there are no attributes that he still needs to gain. And he never needed to gain. He's always possessed all of his attributes. They are essential and inherent aspects of who he is. In addition, God's attributes should not be thought of as, well, here's God, here's God's attributes. Much like you could say, well, here's, here's Wes, the person, the being, the flesh body, but here's Wes's clothes, Right? My clothes are not me, but sometimes we can think of God's attributes as if they're separate. They're not separate. God's attributes are who he is. He, that's, why God, that's why scripture can say God is love. God is righteous. God is just. It's not because it's something that God possesses as if it's separate. It is who he is. Now, in your paper, and I'm going to give you a specification here, there's, there are certainly wrong ways to classify God's attributes. Heresy, borderline heresy, there's plenty of wrong ways. 
There is not just one pattern, though, in Scripture of how to define every attribute and what system. In fact, if you pick up good, solid theologians, you're going to discover different theologians group different attributes in different ways. They use different uh, English words at times to describe the same thing. So I'm going to specify what I have on your cheat sheet here. When I separate out the holiness of God, this is very much a personal opinion based on my study of Scripture. So if you don't like it, that's all right. You can just draw an arrow to the holiness of God and put it under the attributes. The reason I specify this is holiness, the idea of holiness. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll just look at it right here. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, a kind of angel, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple temple was filled with smoke. So here you have, Isaiah has this dream. He sees God exalted and shrouded in glory, sitting upon his throne in the heavens. The seraphim, who as angels are morally perfect, they have no sin. Yet even though they are morally perfect and without sin, they cover their feet and their eyes. Why is that significant? Because what does God tell Moses? Take off your shoes because you are standing on what? Holy ground. No, No man may gaze upon the Lord and live. Why? Because God is holy, even though the angels are morally perfect. It's why holiness means more than just moral perfection. It's not just moral perfection. It's something beyond that because not even the angels are holy in the way that God is holy because they must clothe themselves because not even they are worthy to glimpse upon his holiness. And what is their cry? Holy, holy, holy. And you see this cry in Isaiah. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it there in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the only attribute you ever see given the triple repetition in Scripture. And in the Old Testament in Hebrew, that triple repetition is not just for emphasis. It's Holy, holy, holy. God is not just holy. He is holy of holy. He's not just holy. He's holy of holy of holy. God is perfectly, flawlessly, entirely holy. There is no more holy than God who is holy. That's what that triple repetition is trying to state. So I think as you look out in the basis of what holiness is, I think you can make a strong case that holiness is not just an attribute of God, but it is really, it's just part of, it's who God is. He is holy. And by holy, what that word means is separate, unique, distinct. So when God tells you and I, be holy as I am holy, on one hand, that does refer to a moral perfection. But it was even bigger than that. Be distinct, be unique as I am unique and distinct. God is not like anything else in all creation. Exodus 15, who is like you among the gods, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. So holiness references a total uniqueness. And it's because God is totally unique that the natural outflow of that is he is absolutely pure morally. 
Leviticus 11, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. And what does that holiness look worked out? He says, don't make for yourself uh, unclean with the swarming of things and the swarm on the earth. And he goes on. James 1 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, I know someone really astute says, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, Jesus was tempted by sin. What does that work out? It's a great question. It's not one we're going to cover tonight because that'll be when we get to the doctrine of Christ. It is a great question, uh, and it's not anything to be worried by. But understand, God in his basic nature cannot be tempted by sin. Not only that, but Habakkuk 1 tells us that far from even being tempted to sin, uh, being unable to be tempted to sin, God cannot even look upon sin. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Will we not die? You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. And this is part of what makes God distinct from all of the, the, the other pagan gods in, in the time of the Old Testament, but even look around at other gods in other cultures. The Greek gods, they're known for toying with and doing evil things with humanity. They're not viewed as exemplary figures, but as, as ugly and rude and vile and flawed. God is different because God in no way approves any aspect of evil. And in this holiness, this uniqueness and moral purity, there is a sheer goodness that is terrifyingly beautiful. What do I mean by that? Look with me back at Isaiah 6. Hopefully your Bibles are still open. Isaiah sees this and what is his response? Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When it says woe is me, I, I had a friend growing up whose little brother was the, was the, the little brother that everybody else picked on. And... Uh, <laughs> and his little brother was quite dramatic as a, as a kid. And so he remember this story one time, uh, his brother was mowing the backyard. It was really hot, really humid. And they hear the mower go off and they all look out and his brother is down on his knees, hands raised to the heavens saying, woe is me. Why God do I have to mow? It's a true story. It's easy for us to read Isaiah going, woe is me is kind of this melodramatic hyper. That's not what the language is in Hebrew. Let me be a little bit, maybe more accurate. Isaiah sees the holiness of God instantly in terror, recognizes that he is not holy in any way, shape, form, or fashion, but is in fact the opposite. And his response is literally to, to wish hell and death upon himself. That's what woe is me means. The, the relief, the greater relief then being unholy and seeing the holiness of God is, God is, is kill me with hell for, forever. I am undone. There's something terrifying about the holiness of God because the holiness of God exposes sin. But here's the other reality for you and I, church family. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, without which holiness, it's impossible to see him. You and I cannot have a relationship with God and be unholy. You know about God. We can certainly be made by God. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived and ever will live has been made by God. But we cannot know God apart from being made holy 
which looked back at Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. There must be an act to remove our sin and to forgive and redeem and restore, an act that the Old Testament sacrifices point towards and that what we celebrate on Easter Sunday this week is the perfected finality of. That Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, as a man lived the life you and I as a human being have failed to live in perfect relationship and harmony with God and His righteous order. And He went to that cross, and according to 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus on that cross, He didn't just die a really awful, physically torturous death, but He became my sin. He became your sin, and he drank every last drop of the wrath of God poured out on sin on our behalf. And because he rose from the grave and has been, Philippians 2, exalted at the right hand of God, he is not a Savior whom we remember. He is a Savior whom we look to alive and living, active in faith, and we say, Jesus, we get it. We're not holy. You're holy. You took our place. We need you to make us holy because we were made to be in a relationship with you. Save me by grace through faith. Holiness, we must be made holy. And what's the response to God's holiness then? Look back at Isaiah 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. What is you and I, what is our response to the holiness of God as believers? One, understand the incredible reality. The angels have never sinned, right? Because if an angel sins, they're kicked out of heaven and we have a different name for them. We call them demons. Angels have never sinned. Anyone in here want to claim that? Yet the angels with two wings cover their eyes, with two wings cover their feet. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, at the, at the end of this long run-on sentence that describes the salvation you and I presently have right now in Christ, says we have things to which the angels wish they could get a split-second peek through the door. Literally, that's what it says. A glimpse is probably how your Bible translates it. It's a word that describes what, what um, and I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but as a kid, I always knew where the Christmas presents were. They're in mom's closet. It's just a done deal. And so you, you, you try to, you know, I, I was a good firstborn rule follower, so I never went and opened the closet door but goodness, if you could go in there for whatever reason you could find and happen to get a peek through, that's what that means. That's what that word means. The angels who are without sin wish that they could get a split second glance at what you and I have right now in Christ and what we will have in Christ. Why? Because Christ has made us holy. He's justified, made us right with God. God's declared us righteous in the righteousness of Christ. He is working out that holiness, the process of sanctification, which ends when you and I die and are reunited with our resurrection body at the, at the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth when the Lord returns and we are glorified, perfected. And because of that, because of Christ's holiness in us, 
it says in Revelation, and we will see him. So what is our response to the holiness of God? It's to submit. It's to trust. It's to obey. What is that called? Worship. It's the only response to the holiness of God. And I think God's holiness is what then comes upon. The reason I think it's a little bit unique and distinct is because God doesn't just love, it's holy love. God's not just righteous, it's holy righteous. That's not just holiness binds over everything. Again, my, not my opinion, everything I told you about holiness, but my opinion to separate it out. Now, going through the attributes here, let me give you, I forgot to put this credit on your, your piece of paper. You'll notice that there are some red definitions on your cheat sheet. Those are not my own creation. There is a, a pastor theologian, Wayne Grudem, uh, who wrote a, a systematic theology textbook. It's the big fat one. It's written uh, for uh, lay people really driven and, and, and some undergrad and, and, and beginning seminary students. And he just does a really good job offering simple definitions. So that's what I had in my notes. So that's what you've got. So I need to give you the proviso uh, and I'll need to correct that and figure out the legality of what we put on the internet site. But since you didn't pay for this and I'm not claiming it, there's no plagiarism here. Those red definitions are Wayne Grudem's, not Wes Wilkinson's. So let's just be clear on that. All right. The, there's different ways people divide the attributes. There's usually two common categories. You'll see in, in, in maybe you've heard the term incommunicable or communicable. Those attributes incommunicable that are so uniquely God that there's no part of us that even knows how to identify with that. Communicable, those attributes of God like love, grace, mercy, which we can find expression even if it's in a fallen form amongst humanity. The way I, I, I actually prefer is a different theologian who divided it up as the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And so we're going to look tonight at the greatness of God. These are aspects of God that are, uh, that are there's no expression in terms of humanity. So first is unity. What we mean by that is God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. So just like the triune God is a unified being, one being, three persons, but unity of will, unity of purpose, unity of love. So when we speak of God's attributes, God is not divided into multiple different parts, even though we see in scripture at times his love is emphasized, at times righteousness, at times justice, at times wrath, at times grace, at times we see different aspects singled out, it does not mean that any one aspect is more important than the rest. So think this, younger generation said, well, God is love. So man, we just got to love each other. If we really know God, we just got to love each other. And by love, we mean let's never tell anybody they're wrong. Okay, well, one, that's not actually the kind of love that God is. Two, yes, it does say God is love, but it doesn't say that God is love more importantly than everything else. God is just as much love as he is wrath. He is both. So it's just kind of, and I wish I had a, a whiteboard with me, but here's the best word to think of is God attribu attributes. God is 100% every attribute. And all the attributes exist in perfect harmony in God. So what I mean by that is God is not a balance, right? God is not the right balance of love and wrath. So he's, he's not just too much love or just, he's not balanced. He's fully love and fully wrath. He's also not a collection of attributes added together. We're going we're gonna to take some love, add some wrath. Add, you know, so we, we, you know, like God's a quarter love, a quarter wrath, a quarter grace, a quarter justice. He's not that either. 
These aren't additions to a real being. It's not God plus these things as if these things exist outside of God. So what we have to do is not pit one or over against the other. Here's the reality. God is love. He really loves human beings. He really loves you and I. God is also wrath. And it really does please him as a just judge to pour out the right punishment upon sin. And we'll look at that next week because those fall under the goodness of God. So we don't emphasize one over or against the other. The reason that we focus on one at a time is this. Because none of us can fathom all of God's attributes at the same time. So we need to be able to focus on one at a time because otherwise our minds explode. So God is unified in the attributes. He is every attribute in the fullness of that attribute. God is independent, meaning that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. He's triune. He has no need for us. Yet we in the rest of creation can glorify him and he absolutely gives, gets joy from us. He gets joy from interacting with us, from seeing us. Remember, we looked at that last week. Out of the overwhelming goodness of God's love, he chose to create beings in his image who could enjoy that love and enjoy that relationship with him. Acts chapter 17 says this, verse 24, the God who made the world and, and all things in it, since he is Lord of heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he's the one who gives life to all people and life and breath and all things. He's the one who took one man and made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He's the one who determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might reach out in desperation for him and find him. In Job, he says this, Job 41, who has given to me that I should repay him? What under the whole of heaven, uh, whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine or my personal favorite is in Psalm 50 verse 10 through 12. God says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountain and everything that moves in the field is mine. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and all it contains. What do we mean by God's independence? We mean that God's, who God is, God's existence, how God acts is not dependent in any way upon anything in all of creation, seen or unseen. The angels don't enable him to be God. We don't enable him. He is God and he's independent, which is tied to this, his freedom, that God can do whatever he pleases. And the, and the implication here is that nothing in all creation can hinder God from doing his will. Psalm 115 verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar comes out of thinking he's a wolf and he has this encounter with the Lord, he says, I looked, I looked to heaven and I blessed the Most High for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he says, but he does according to his will in the host in heavens and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Here's the importance of God's independence and freedom. It's that God can't be controlled. God himself controls himself. But there is not one of us who can control, manipulate, twist, put God in a pinch. Which means that when we get down and we go, okay, God, I will really follow you if, <laughs> sorry, it's not going to work with God. Because God's like, hey, I, I don't need you to do if in order to do that. But I called you to obey 
It means that um, it means no group, no matter what kind of power they have politically and whatever way they seem to claim that power from the Lord, it, it means no group can twist him or hold him or God is God. And he doesn't answer to us, we answer to him. And that's the importance of his, of his independence and his freedom. His immutability or his unchangeableness means this, God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes and promises. Yet God does, does act and feel emotion. He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So this is very important. And maybe you won't encounter this, but your kids and grandkids might encounter this. There, there, is, there is a very active attack on this today uh, in, in liberal theological circles that's become very mainstream. Understand what this means. God does not increase in anything because he's already perfect. God is already perfectly loving. He's perfectly gracious. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly wrathful. He's perfect. He lacks nothing. So there's no increase there's also no decrease. If God decreased in anything by a, by, a, by a millimeter, he wouldn't be God because he would be less than perfect. God's nature does not change. Therefore, his plans, his minds, his actions do not change. Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. James 1, every good, and, uh, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who God is does not change. And this is really important. Who is God? God is the God who created us. And if he doesn't change, it means he's not going to uncreate us. God is a God who doesn't change, which means God had a plan to save us, which means God's, we don't have to live in fear of God one day changing his mind and going, oh my goodness, my church is an absolute mess some days. I think I'll just not save them anymore. It means that God is the God who said, I am coming back. It means that he's not going to one day go, you know what, actually, my, uh, my uh, heavenly lazy boy throne is really comfortable, and I don't know that it's worth going down there to deal with all that. I think I'm just going to stay back. No, we know he's coming back because he doesn't change. He doesn't change his character. It means that that moment when you had some encounter with God where all of a sudden it was like you were on the mountaintop of transfiguration and God pulled the clouds back and you, you saw him in his glory and you, you had this incredible encounter where, where you really understood that he loves you and he's with you and he's all of this. It means that, that encounter with God there, that God you encountered hasn't changed when Two weeks later, you've gotten three hours of sleep and you're changing a poopy diaper and there's laundry to be done. Also means that same God doesn't change when three weeks later, you begin to be tempted and willfully give in. Then God doesn't change. Now the question is, but, but what about times in scripture God changes his mind? Like Nineveh. God told Jonah, I'm going to strike them dead. Or like when God talks to Moses in Exodus 32 and he says, I, I'm going to just wipe this people out. And then Moses pleads and says, but wait, if, if you take us out, if you do that, it'll, it'll, it'll be a poor image of your glory. And, and 
Now, here's the truth, church family. If you go through, and we don't have time tonight to go through every one of them, if we're going to make it through the other things we've got to make it through. So let me give you the real short answer. And if you've got more questions, come talk or we can do it more. The short answer is this. If you go through every one of those situations, God doesn't change his mind. Man changes his response to God. And God faithfully then responds to man's change exactly how he always says he'll respond. God didn't change towards Nineveh. Nineveh repented and changed towards God. And what did God do when they repented? The same thing God always promises to do when you and I repent, which is to forgive, to restore. What happened with with Moses? Moses pleaded on behalf of the people. Moses stood as an intercessor on behalf of the people. God didn't change his mind. Someone stood in the gap on behalf of the people, and God responded to that standing in the gap the way God promised he would respond. In every one of those instances, it's not God changing his mind. It's people responding You've got different points of redemption history where you see different things. And this is all a counter to what's called process theology and open theism. Process theology, really simple. Everything is undergoing process. And in a lot of ways, that's true for you and I. We're all undergoing a process. We're undergoing a process of aging. A process where once you cross a certain bar, everything hurts and gets worse. A process where once you cross a certain bar, you just add more different doctor titles to your regular friends. We are undergoing a process. We're undergoing a process spiritually, a process of sanctification where God is working out his holiness in every part of our life. We are undergoing a process, but God is not. Because God is not like us. Process theology would say God is undergoing process, therefore God is changing. I realize a terrifying reality of that. You can't see God God doesn't speak in audible voices regularly. What a terrifying thought if God is changing all the time and we have no clue. But that's what process theologians hold. Open theism says this, because God is changing, God cannot, or let's say this, God knows all things tied to his nature, but true human freedom is outside his nature, so God doesn't know what man's about to do. These are real, actual theologians that gain more and more steam with younger generations. Obviously, those fall, fall falsely to the fact that God is immutable. He does not change. God is spirit. Spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, spiritual or physical. By spiritual, I mean like whatever spiritual matter the angels are made of, God's not made of that. It's a little bit confused. Let me use this. Angels are not made of like atoms, right? You and I are made of atoms, molecules, electrons, protons, all that stuff that some of you really liked in school and some of you didn't. Angels aren't made of that because they're part of the unseen realm. But they are made of something because they're made. Even though they're unseen and part of a different, the other side of creation than we are, When we say that God is spirit, we don't mean that in the same way that we're referring to angels or even you and I's souls, that that part of our body, that, that part of us, our being, that will leave our bodies and be with the Lord. When we say God is spirit, we mean God is not made of anything. 
Because if he was made of something, then he's dependent upon that something to be God. What is God made of? God. And the only way we know to give a term to that is we say spirit. (laughs) Say, well, pastor, what is spirit? Don't know. (laughs) Hadn't seen God yet. (laughs) Can't answer that question for you. But we do know this. John tells the woman at the well in John chapter four, an hour is coming and now is when, when the worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father seeks his worshipers. God is spirit. Uh, in Exodus 20, we're prohibited from making idols for part of, part of the reason because God cannot be bound and described by a graven image. This is part of, in, in ancient God culture, your God was bound by an image and trapped to a uh, geographic sphere, which is the big deal about 1 Samuel 5 when they take the ark, the Philistines, back and they put the ark in their temple and each night the, their God is toppled over, though no one was in there. Because God is not bound, because God is spirit in his core essence. So what do you do, Pastor, when, when you say, well, what about like the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous? Well, we call that an anthropomorphism. We are using a human term to describe God clearly is, is looking at the righteous, and that's the best way we know how to, how, to, how to say it. But God in his base being does not have eyes. Now, here's the proviso. Jesus does. Because Jesus now has full humanity that he didn't give back. He's still fully human. Perfected humanity. Which means quite literally Jesus does have real eyes that he looks down on you and I with. He does have real ears which he hears you and I's voices with. He does have real hands with nail pierced scars. That on your worst day when you think God has forgotten you. Think of the words of Isaiah when he says. What mother forgets their newborn child. But yet even if these do I do not. Because your name is engraven on the palms of my hands. In the form of nail scars on Christ. Now, this is huge because Mormons hold that God the Father has a physical body. And in Mormonism, they also hold that an immaterial body cannot exist. As you see the contrast, some of these terms are, are how our God is holy, how he is unique, how he contrasts from the made up gods of mankind. God is, in his essence, spirit, which by default means God is invisible. God's total essence, all of his spiritual being will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows himself through visible created things. 1 Timothy 6, uh, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John 4, no one has ever seen God at any time. If we love God, God abides in us. First, uh, or John chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Uh, and it goes on to basically say Jesus is the only one who's seen him, and he explains him to us. Uh, Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long in John 14, and yet you have, come to know, you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is part of why the, the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, is so important for us. Because God in his basic nature, because he's spirit, he's not physical, he's invisible. But remember what I said last week, you want to know what God is like? Start with Jesus. How do we know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Why can't we look at Jesus? Because Jesus took on flesh like us. Personality means this, God is a personal being. He's an individual with self-consciousness and will, capable of feeling, choosing, having a reciprocal relationship. Think about Exodus 3.19. What what does Moses say? He says, "Hey, hey God, who's speaking out of the bush, who am I going to say sins? Like, what am I going to, when I go down to Israel, who, 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 what's your name? What am I going to, what's God say? I am who I am. Thus you shall tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God has a name. You ever think about that? He's not just God generic. He has a name. Not only that, but then he gives multiple names that describes who he is. He has his divine, the core name, the name, I am who I am, but then El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, all these other names. We see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then God called out to man. God has from the beginning regularly engaged in personal relationship and activity with humankind. Why? Because he is a personal God. He has personality. This obviously differs from worldviews that would say that God is, all reality is God, or all reality is manifestation from God, very, very Eastern religion. No, everything is not God. God is God. He is a person, which means there's a warmth and a realness to the way we relate to him, and God is not just some impersonal bureaucracy. When you pray to God, it, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't go through, when you and I pray to God, it doesn't go through multiple channels of various heavenly bureaucracy and ultimately never finds its way to the president's desk. When you and I pray to God, we pray to God. When God speaks to you and I, he doesn't, doesn't go through channels of bureaucracy and doesn't, no, God knows our name. He knows every hair on our head. He speaks that God himself, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God is personal God who relates, who acts. It means this, he's not a force. He's, he's not a means to an end. He's not the cosmic Coke machine. I'll put this in and I expect this out. It means because God is a, a personal God that things are not the same to God. Now, now catch this with me. If there's things as a personal God, a God who has personality, it means there's things he likes and there's things he doesn't like. There's things that delight him and there's things that grieve him. There's things that bring him joy. There's things that bring him sorrow. There's things he loves. There's things he hates. Why? Because he has personality. He is a personal God, which to you and I means we cannot accept any view that just Oh, you know, everything's the same. It's not, everything's not the same to God. And our job is to be so hungry to know him that we would know what he likes and what he dislikes so that we'd walk in what he likes by the power of the Spirit because we can, as followers of Christ, saved by grace through faith, and turn away from the things he doesn't like. All right, we got 10 minutes to cover the omnis, not the hotels. Say in your paper, God is infinity. By infinity, we mean God is unlimited and he is unable to be limited. No one can place limits on him. And this, this comes out in three different broad categories. Space and time. This is what we would use if you hear the word omnipresence. Omnipresence. This is God's infinity in space and time. It means that God does not have size or spatial dimensions. And he is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. So here's what we mean by, and by space. I don't mean outer space. I mean, right, like you and I are taking up space. If we all leave, there's more space in the room. If we put more people in, there's less space in the room, right? We mean, we mean physical space, place. God cannot be confined to space. He cannot be confined by a finite like, location. You want to know why? 
And I'm so sorry. Next week, stuff will be a whole lot more grounded. We'll all be going, oh, yes, amen, pastor. I get this. I get God's love. I get. I'm sorry that we covered the Trinity. and I'm not sorry. It's who God is, so I won't apologize. But part of the reason God can't be limited by space is because God created space. The very concept of space, and again, not outer space, but just filling up space. God made that. So he can't be bound by what he made. I mean, this goes back to Acts chapter 17 and what he, what he says there. Is God bound? God, will, God is not bound by human temples. I mean, the practical reality of that is God is not only, it's why sometimes I hesitate even on Sunday morning and say, oh, church family, it ain't good to be in the house of the Lord because it makes it sound like God's only present if we're here in his house. This isn't his house, this is just a building. Technically, you and I's bodies are his temple. Because God's not bound by space. God is just as much present in this building as he is present in the school across the street. As he is present in your workplace. As he is present. There's no place where he is not present. That's Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, even you are there. It's why I take issue when we define hell as the absence of God. Hell's not the absence of God. God's present there. God can't not be present there. Nor is hell Satan's kingdom. Satan's going to rot in hell too. No, hell is the place where God removes the wonderful aspects, the, 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 the aspects of him we love to relate to. It's the presence of God pouring out as just wrath. That's what hell is because God is even there. There's no place we can go where God is not. He cannot be limited. This is part of the beauty when you read the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel, God taking on Baal because Mount Carmel was viewed as Baal's home throne. And so we went to, uh, the challenge is we're going to go Baal, we're going to go to your home throne, we're going to give you first pick, we're going to give you all day, and nothing's going to happen because you're a fake God, but God who's not bound by any geographic location will pour down his fire even on your throne. There is no place where God is not, and God cannot be limited. What we mean by this is not, is not that God is just so big. God is just so vast, you know? I mean, go with me. It's going to sound really dumb, and, but it's not like God is so vast that we here in Pflugerville, we're, we're in God's kneecap. But if we could get out there to Pluto, we'd make our way at least up to God's mid-hip. It's not that God is just so big. It's that all of God, the fullness, 100% of God's person is in every possible place there is space. It's not just that God is really big. God is really big. But it's that the fullness of God is 100, God right now is 100% present in this place. He's also 100% present over in the worship center. He's also 100% present over where the youth are about to be. He's 100% fullness present, not just us being caught inside someplace, which means this practically, church family, there's nowhere you can go where he is not. Not only that, there's nowhere you can go where he's not just around you, but where as a child of God, he's not 100% in you. You and I can't get away. It's also, it's not just limited by space. He's not limited by time. The question, how old is God, is inappropriate. He's no older now than a year ago because he's infinity. He's eternal, no beginning, no end. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. His name is not I was or I will be, it's I am. God exists completely and entirely outside of time, yet we see him because he is personal, relating and working and moving inside of time. 
He both exists outside of time and is aware of human events inside of time. That's why Galatians 4 can say that in the fullness of time, in the proper moment of time, God sent his son. It's why when we come in a couple weeks to talk about everybody's dreaded topic of God's sovereignty and man's free will, it's not a dreaded topic, it's great. It's part of why I get frustrated when we always try to put human time constraints on God. Well, God was way back here and he predetermined what would happen here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God wasn't way back here. God is way back there because God exists outside of time. And you go, well, pastor, help me understand that. I can't because I don't. I don't exist outside of time. I'm five seconds older now than I was when I started saying that. I'm bound by time. You and I don't know. And even though you and I will live on for all eternity, we still have a beginning. God has no beginning. Even his eternal nature is different than ours. We have no ending but he has no beginning or end. He exists outside of time. Regarding knowledge, we call this omniscient. God fully knows himself in all things actual and possible in one single defining moment. We know from Romans 13, oh, the depth and riches of his wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways. God knows everything and there's no possible way for you and I to grasp everything he knows. Yet at the same time in his knowledge, his knowledge is so vast, it's also so personal. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet one of them will, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's. Even the very heads on your head are numbered. Yet God, who knows everything, is so personal, he knows when a sparrow falls down. Hebrews 4 says, all things are known and laid bare to him. And there's examples where where Jesus speaks and he makes statements like, I tell you, if if Sodom and Gomorrah would have had what you had, they would have repented, which means God doesn't just know everything that is. He also knows everything that is possible. Everything that is possible. And in this, we have what we call wisdom. God is all wise, meaning he always chooses the best goal and the best means to meet those goals. That's why the classic line of God knew every possible way he could create the world. And because he is good and loving, he would only desire to create the best of all possible worlds. Because he's all powerful, he would have the ability to do it. So a world in which he is sovereign, but gives us a kind of moral, eternally conscious free will, we can conclude is the best of all possible ways he could have created because of who his character is. He knows all things. There is no hiding. And the way he acts is wise. He's wise in how he created. He's wise in redemption. He's wise in how he plays out in his life, meaning that he only acts in good. Lastly is omnipotence. God is able to do all his holy will. Now him who is able to do more above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within him. Matthew 19, speaking of a human heart changing, he says, with man this is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. God has the power to change human hearts. We see Jesus with nature. Matthew 14, he has the power over nature. Acts 17, he speaks about determining the boundaries of people means that God has power over history. God has determined, according to Acts 17, how long the Roman Empire would last. It means God's also determined how long the United States of America will last. And he's determined and worked in in the moving of, of countries and nations and people groups for the purpose that men and women would come to know him, is what Paul says in Acts 17. God has all power to do his will, which is why it's the classic farce question of, can God create a rock too big he can't carry it? Well, it's a false question because God can do all things in his will. His will would never be to create a rock bigger than he, that, it's not, that doesn't fly past 
the logic inspection. God is able to do all things within his will. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says this, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, holy. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Here's what he's saying. Who is like me? None. I always have been. I always will be. I am who I am. Space and time do not bound me. I have all power. My plans, I have all knowledge. My plans are all good and I will accomplish what I have set out to accomplish and none can stop, none can stop where we are going because God is all knowing. He is all present and he is all powerful. This is the greatness of God. And here's what it means in the last 30 seconds. It means church family. God is far beyond the way we're created, which means you and I will never come to the end of trying to comprehend, grasp, and understand him. Tonight should blow all our minds to a certain level. I've tried to communicate as clearly as possible and not lose anybody, but if you go, man, I can't fathom all of this, guess what? I can't either. That's part of the point why we call it the greatness of God. Praise God our God is not fully understood by us. Otherwise, we'd be greater. But... Though we cannot know him fully, oh my goodness, church family, in his greatness, we can know him intimately and personally. This same God who is great and vast, who is far beyond our full and complete understanding is the same God who wants us to really know him truly and rightly, which is why he doesn't shy away in his word from showing all this about himself. He wants us to understand who he is as he is. We need to understand, church family, that God is independent and authoritative, which means you and I cannot buy him or manipulate him but we can worship him. We can submit to him. We can trust him because he is truly wise. He knows all things. He acts in true goodness. That's what his wisdom is. He is all powerful and able to bring it about. Therefore, you and I can trust him completely. And understanding who he is makes it clear why he so dislikes when we walk in a lack of faith because he is so great and he is so good and he is worthy of our affection. So let me pray. We've gone about a minute over. So let me pray. And if you've got questions, I'll stick around. If not, have fun. Those of you inquire, inquire. And uh, we are so excited for Good Friday service at seven uh, in two nights, as well as Easter this Sunday. And goodness, praise the Lord, we celebrate Easter all year long, not just on Easter Sunday, because he is risen all year long, not just on Easter Sunday. So let's pray. Father, you are great and you are vast and um, so far beyond us. Yet, Lord, all we've done tonight is go through your written word in our own language because you are so personal, you want us to know you. So, God, I know some of this can, can feel maybe a little heady or it, 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 you try to comprehend it, you try to go around with it, Lord, and, and, and we need to. We need to wrestle with it because we, 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 will, we need to know you. But may we not get so lost that we miss the heart of all of it, which is you are a personal God, the one true God. And when we trust you and we submit to you and we worship you, you are the great and mighty Lord. And that should bring a peace and calm to our life, even in the midst of the most turbulent season. 
Because whatever step we need to take, it is you, the great and mighty, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, who has gone before us, who goes with us, and whose glory guards our rear. Jesus, it's to you we look. In your name we pray. Amen.